I'll be reading from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Let's print it to your bulletin. Let's hear now the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen. Um, I was in the office with uh, Hal before the service, and he used a phrase I really agree with, that RUF and, and Redeemer in Athens has an almost symbiotic relationship. There is, it's hard to know where one begins and one ends, Vice versa, and I want to express my gratitude for the role that Redeemer Athens has played in the development of RUF, not just here in Athens, but the way that its influence has sent men out into RUF all over the place. This is my first time I've visited here at Redeemer at Athens. I've been to Athens many times. First time, it was the uh, fall of 1977. And remember when you could go to the stadium and you could sit on that bridge and see the games? Remember that? I went to see a South Carolina-Georgia game. We got destroyed, but Athens was a great place to be. But I've never been to Redeemer before. I've heard much about it, and it's uh, my pleasure to be here. I've been the uh, coordinator for RUF for a little over a year now. And there are a few transitional issues. It's been a good experience. One very, very small one is this. Whenever we do at RUF an assessment for potential campus ministers... We give, during that three or four days, we uh, have them take that Myers-Briggs test. you familiar with that? ENTJ thing? I'm not really a fan. And I kind of don't know what to do about it. Because uh, a lot of people love that stuff. You take that test, and you get those four letters, and you, that's how you interact with things, and that's who you are. I'm not a fan because... Well, there's a lot of reasons why, but one is it, it takes something that is really very, very complicated, and it, to me, I could be wrong, it kind of reduces it to something that's, I think, a little too simple. There's thing, character, personality is a really complicated thing. I think there's sort of like excluded middles involved in that, but another reason I don't like it is because sometimes uh, I'll be talking to people who say, well, you know, I reacted, I reacted that way because I am this I-N-R something. And I'm thinking, well, maybe it's just because you're a jerk, <laughs> all right? Maybe you need to repent. I just don't like it. But we still do it, and I'm a little uncomfortable. But I get, I understand why there is this fascination with our personality types. Because it's just so obvious. I have three children, and based on their personality types, you would scarcely believe they came from the same parents. They are that different. We know people that sort of respond almost consistently the same way to certain situations. We know that it's true. I'm just not sure we can reduce it to something that simple. But I will say this, that as far as me, that when I look at my life, I think my personality is dominated by basically one thing. 
I am really grumpy. I'm a very, very grumpy person. Always have been. Like, remember that um, a little while ago, the, uh, remember the ice bucket challenge thing video? I got so tired of that. <laughs> Just give them money. Come on now, stop it. That wasn't nice. And really, on balance, I need to say this, that being grumpy, on balance, listen carefully, it has not served me well. Being grumpy, on balance, has not been a good thing for me. It has led me to say things and do things that are really not all that smart, all that edifying. It's gotten me into a lot of trouble. But you know, every now and then, being grumpy comes in pretty handy. As a young Christian, um, Hal mentioned uh, coming to faith in, at South Carolina. And uh, the story's a good one. I won't bore you with it, but it was uh, two recently converted Southern Baptists who were in my dorm at USC. I was their project, great kids, that we got tired of arguing. They finally they said to me, listen, here's a good news Bible. Remember the Bible with the line drawings? Remember those, that Bible? Here's a good news Bible. If you promise to read the book of Romans and the gospel of John, we'll quit arguing about religion. And it was when I got to Romans 5, 1 to 6, it was almost like what John Wesley talks about at Aldersgate Chapel, where he felt his heart strangely warmed for the first time. When I got to this section, it was, you know, it was beginning to click with me about the mercy of God. I became a Christian, and I, I was at a church, but I figured I needed to find a campus group to go to. I had no idea, no clue. very first one I went to um, was met in a, in a church near campus. I saw a sign, I went to it, and I went to this meeting. It wasn't super large, but it began with students sort of giving testimony. And a student, I'll never forget this stood up and said, y'all, I, there's been a miracle. I want, I want to sort of encourage you with a miracle in my life. And she said, you know, I was driving to campus, and I couldn't find a parking space. But then I found one, and that was a miracle. Now, I knew very little about the Christian faith back then. I knew next to nothing. But I knew intuitively, there was that grumpiness. I went, oh, come on. That's not a miracle. That can't be a miracle. Are you kidding me? I thought there's something fundamentally wrong with someone elevating the miracle of God to being saving 10 minutes and getting to your class. So I kept looking for campus groups. I found RUF. They were as grumpy as I was, and look where I am now. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's great. But when you look at Romans 5, 1 to 6, I'm not encouraging you to be grumpy. But I think it's impossible to understand this text and to really embrace it without filtering through and getting through some really weird ideas we have that we have embraced when it comes to the idea of resistance in the Christian life. Suffering, things we need endurance for. I mean, without filtering through some of this stuff, without being okay, without some incredulity about the way that we embrace the ideas of happiness and success, Romans 5, 1 to 6 makes no sense at all. The theme of this missions conference, I think the intersection of campus, city, and church, is that right? Now, let's think of that intersection. Now, if you look at that intersection, from one perspective, positionally in Jesus, it's a beautiful thing with the righteousness of Christ doing kingdom work. But from another perspective... It is an almighty mess, isn't it? 
because it's just like you. It's just like me. It's a beautiful mess, but it's still a mess. And one reason that we, we, we get so messy in our understanding of the gospel is because we have taken things like happiness and success, and we've turned them upside down. Basically, we have not overrated the idea of happiness. The Bible does speak of joy and happiness, but the way that we have embraced it so often is we've turned it on its head. We've kind of warped the idea of happiness, and we've, in a way, almost overrated the way we think happiness ought to be. Now, honestly, the way that you and I think of happiness, in so many ways, the language that we use of happiness is, in the main, sort of a post-industrial Western construct. I mean, think about it. The existence of humankind, of mankind, I mean, it's been relatively recently when you and I, as, as people, would have been threatened by early death by disease, or animals. But when we began to prosper, we had all the spare time, we started thinking, hmm, what is existence like? I don't have to spend all day eking out an existence. We began to think and reflect, and things got complicated. The British philosopher John Stuart Mill said this, ask yourself whether you are happy, and immediately you cease to be happy. When you start, well, what does it mean to be happy? What is my connection with things? What is it that's preventing me from being really, really happy? And what happens is this. We begin to borrow ideas of happiness that makes Romans 5, 1 to 6, unintelligible. For example, if we see resistance and suffering as an obstacle to personal fulfillment and happiness, Romans 5, 1 to 6 makes no sense. Romans 5 is here to tell us this is not a bad thing. Look what this produces. Look what our hope is. And look at Jesus who died for the ungodly. But if our construct of happiness is, well, you know, I didn't get that job. I didn't get into that school. The internet is down. Oh, my goodness. We just don't really understand it. If we see it as an an obstacle to these things, we are short-circuiting what God is saying to us here. There's several things that conspire against us here that we have embraced. One thing that psychologists call is the satisfaction treadmill. You've heard that phrase? The satisfaction treadmill? One man calls it hedonic adaptation. I like that. This is um, my phone. It's a Nexus 5 Android phone. It's a little over a year old. And when I got this thing, it was my precious. Oh, I love this phone. It was so great. It was operating the latest Android operating system. It did so many cool things. Sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the light and stare at it. It's so cool. Look at this phone. It's great. I love my gadgets. But then, you know, I had it for, you know, it got scratched. Then it started running a little slowly. Then new models came out. And like, you know, I kind of hate this phone now. All right? I need a new one. We get a new job. We move to a new neighborhood. We finally get into that school. We have children. And things in the glow of receiving these things becomes just a great joy. It becomes incandescent how happy we are. Well, the satisfaction treadmill is this, is the predictable and frustrating way any new source of pleasure begins to fade as time goes on. It gets relegated to the backdrop of our lives. We grow accustomed to it, and it ceases to deliver the joy that it used to. So what do we do? We look for new sources of joy. 
And what it is is those great blessings from God have occupied a place God had never intended. The second is this. Is, this is kind of complicated, but I won't spend a lot of time here. It's the idea that how we look at our past. David Bentley Hart is a Christian philosopher. He said this, the past is always to some extent a fiction of the present. It's how we look at the past. It's the way that we look at things that happened to us in the past, and we tend to, um, C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory, has a, has a beautiful section about this, is that we impute to our memories things that were not actually there. We look to our childhood. We look to our college days. We look to our glorious past. We think life was so great then. Life was simpler. Life had greater joy. When actually, in the moment, there was probably a lot of stuff during that that wasn't very nice. But we have imputed to our past this idea that we can never replicate all what went on back then. Lewis called it that inconsolable longing. And you were really looking for something else, not really that memory itself. And so we look, some of us are captured, we're, we're captive to our past. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves, Matthew 19, do not lay up for yourselves, Matthew 5, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. The problem with our idea of happiness is, is that we invest so much in what can be destroyed by moth and which does rust. The Apostle Paul must mean something when he says this, we are afflicted in every way, but what? Not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying the body of the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So, Romans 5, it says that resistance, that disappointment, that frustration, that way by which life is, seems to be going against us produces something quite beautiful. But if we are in that endless pursuit of that thing that gives us that temporal, visceral satisfaction, always looking for something more when that fades, we can't make sense of this. Or if we're captive to our memories, our past, to the golden era, the golden days, never to be replicated again, the future is bleak, isn't it? Where is the hope spoken of in Romans 5? But when we're talking about the intersection of the city and the church. It's also not only the idea of happiness, but it's also the idea of success and achievement. I didn't mention to um, Hal, but when I came back from Australia, I actually, we worked in New York City for four years. I was the associate pastor of the Village Church in Greenwich Village. I did RUF at NYU for four years. And New York City, as uh, people who live there, work there, will say, is the place of the great meritocracy. It's the city where you succeed because you succeed. And New York City was the, the greatest example of that. People go there who are nobodies and become somebodies because they achieve things. And the city is the place where we go to achieve. The campus, obviously, is the place where we want to succeed. We want to get into a place like Georgia because the SAT score requirement is pretty high. It's a pretty good school. We want to get into a certain kind of program. We want to achieve for our future. But we have, in so many ways, warped the idea of what achievement is. Suffering produces endurance. 
Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, and I think it's a healthy one, is that what we hope to produce in our lives with your children, this is a hard, I'm an empty nester. This is a very, very hard thing for me to consider. I think of my own children, because for most of my, my kids growing up that era of their life, in so many ways I was looking over here when I should have been looking over there. And what I hope for my kids, looking back on it, was, was pretty out of kilter. What is it that you hope that your kids produce? Do you want them to be academically successful, socially skilled, have a lot of friends? What is it we want to produce in our vocational life? And this came home to me while I was at New York during a meeting we had with all the campus ministry, the heads of the campus ministries. We gathered like two or three times a year. This is my second year there, start of the year. We're in this room, about 12 other campus ministry heads. And the person who led it said this. Let's go around the room, we were sitting in a circle, and let's talk about what we hope to produce in our students. Like your students you work with, what do you want to see them do? And they start with the person next to me, and they went in the opposite direction. So I had a lot of time to think about it. And the first person said something like this. Well, I, you know, I hope my students grow up, and they mature, and they become really sensitive to social needs. That's a very important thing. Can't fault that. Next person said this, well, I want our students to be those who are committed to evangelism and discipleship as they grow up. I can't argue with that. Another person said, I want our students to have vital Christian lifestyles. Another one said, I want them to consider foreign missions. They went around the room, and they basically hovered around what their ministry was about. They got to me. And part of me is thinking, well, all the good stuff's gone. I'm not going to say, right? But then it hit me. I'm not saying my motives were completely pure when I said this. Don't know. This is what I said. I said, well, what I hope for my students is, is that in 30 years, they're still Christians. And then I didn't say anything else. And then there was this really awkward pause. And people were waiting for me to say something else. And then all of a sudden I realized everyone felt sorry for me. Oh, poor Tom. (laughs) He's been at this too long. He's setting the bar so low. He must be so jaded. And the fact is, to this day, that the the happiest, the most thrilling moments in ministry I have are when I run into somebody who was in a Bible study I was in in 1982. And they're still Christians. They're still wrestling with the gospel. They're still moving forward, sometimes in fits and starts, as a beautiful mess, but they're still doing their thing. They're still with Jesus. I am unbelievably happy. I am thrilled. But that doesn't sound like if we're talking about what success is, we're talking about what we do in our work. I'm thinking about what Woody Allen said about life. Remember what he said? 80% of life is what? Just showing up. When I got this job... I received several phone calls from the heads of other ministries. They were extremely encouraging. And one man in particular was trying to encourage me. And he said, well, Tom, what is your hope for your staff this year? What are you hoping your staff, what what is the thing that you hope your staff is really into this year? And I said, without hesitation, I hope they show up. Now, I wasn't trying to be a smart aleck there. 
Because so much of ministry is when you wake up and it's just so hard sometimes and so confusing. And it's checkered with so much frustration at times. The temptation is to crawl in a fetal position. You need to go. Even if you don't feel like you need to move, you need to be there and watch what God does with faithful people, very imperfect people, when they move ahead in faith, even when it feels like their ministry is a complete failure. You need to show up. You need to move. And that beautiful mess of the intersection of the kingdom and the church and the city, if nothing else, it means we just keep going. We keep moving. You may not know this, but um, I'm also a, a musician. Did you know that? I'm a really bad musician. I play the bass guitar in an old man dad band, have for a long time. And I'm a musician like a trained monkey is an entertainer, right? I'm not really good. I'm really, really bad. Um, I can't keep time to save my life. I'm really not very good. And I remember one, when I was first involved, I was in Savannah, when I first got involved with one of these sort of dad bands, and our wives were just extremely embarrassed, our kids were mortified. But we did it anyway. And it was in Savannah, and um, a guy named Frankie Daniel, who was a youth pastor, he was older than I was, but he was a youth pastor at Independent Prez, and we were playing one of our first songs. And it was Louie Louie. You know Louie Louie song? Three chords. We're playing Louie Louie, and I am making a fist of it. I mean, I'm just sort of messing it up. It's three notes. And I'm, not, I'm just not getting it. And I throw my hands down, and, he, and we're there playing, and Frankie yells out. He says, Tom, keep going. Don't stop. It's just three chords. Keep going. So I did. Oh, A, A, D, D, E. Yeah, yeah, okay. I got this. There is a certain chord structure of that song that keeps it together. And you just keep going, you keep playing it. There is a certain harmonic cadence to the Christian life. The certain structure that God's love for us, the, the presence of the church gives to us, the hope that is spoken here gives to us, where we just, you just keep going. Yeah, you're, you're messing it up. You just keep moving. It is as simple as those three chords. You keep going with this. And here's the funny thing. Um, I am, I'm still a really bad bass player, but I'm better than I was 10 years ago. Does that make sense? I'm not as apocalyptically bad as I was when I first started. Why? Because I just keep going. You just keep going. And so success measured that way is very different than the way you and I often see it. If you keep forward motion, there's a song that said this, forward motion is very, very difficult. And forward motion can be very, very difficult. It can be frustrating. But the idea is that we keep going and we don't stop. Now, mind you, the, um, the New Testament, uh, people sort of ask questions at this point. Well, Tom, doesn't the New Testament speak of a Christian church that turned the world upside down, does it? Of course it does. Through ordinary men and women, God has done things in the history of the world through the church that have been unbelievable, have been remarkable, have been extraordinary. But the question I'm asking you this is, how do you define the normal Christian life? How do you define it? The answer is it depends, doesn't it? It depends on the individual. It depends on your circumstances. It depends upon the things that you bring to the gospel, the the immensity of of the baggage that you bring to it, the the people that surround you. 
And the person who simply perseveres in life is as valued in the eyes of God as those who achieve to us great things. What is that chapter in Hebrews that talks about people of faith? What is that in that chapter? Hebrews what? 11, right? Hebrews 11? If you don't know, they go there. It's, it, it talks about all these people uh, who, who, are, who are commended by God because of what? Their faith, right? It's a really weird group of people, isn't it? It's an odd mix of kings and paupers, men and women, harlots and soldiers, who did amazing things, who won great battles for God, and, and, and who, just, who did extraordinary things of faith, and others who did things, you go, that's not much. But they're all commended for one thing, their faith. And so we move forward because that is great success in the eyes of God. And, and in doing that, in the light of suffering and endurance, produces this character and this endurance and this hope. Now, finally... Um, to, to tie this together, what, what the, what, this thing is a mess because not only do we have a, a misunderstanding of happiness and achievement, but the third thing is this, is that we, of course, tragically underrate the love of God. We tragically underrate the gospel. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, verse 6. That's the gospel, isn't it? We are so busy chasing the idea of happiness and making a difference, we kind of miss this idea right here. The idea that the reason we have so much hope is that Christ died for the ungodly. Now, I don't care how you describe this. In our, in our denomination, our little church world, we, we often plant our flags behind certain phrases and slogans. You know, I'm, I'm, some will say, well, I'm... I believe in, um, I'm, I'm mission-oriented. I'm missional. Well, I'm grace-oriented. Well, I believe in the, in the law of God. We, all, we, we sort of camp around certain things where we want, to believe, we want to believe in this emphasis. I don't care what you call it. I don't care how you phrase it. I don't care what books you read. I don't care what people you think are great. I don't think if you're, you could be a Hal fan, a Tim Keller fan. You could be a fan of anybody. I don't really, it doesn't matter to me. But the degree to which we understand how suffering works in our life is the degree that we fully embrace that at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I'm not terribly concerned how you, how you want to remember that, how you, you know, what camp you want to go in on that one. In fact, I think in our little circle, in our, not strange, our little denomination, we do too much of that. But the degree to which that we can face suffering is the idea, is the degree that we understand that, you know what, this is okay because Christ died for the ungodly. This, I have hope because Jesus, in fact, died for me. And that is a beautiful thing. So what is the, what is the lesson for you and I? I, I love this. Is Chuck Close, who was an artist, said this. Inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us to show up and get to work. Heard that one? I really believe this. I believe that there is such a beauty and a glory in the young mother who spends all her days, most of her day, changing diapers. I think there's there's incredible beauty in that. There's incredible beauty in the man who is stuck in a job that he really does not like. But he understands 
that Christ died for the ungodly. He's not passive about it, but if for some reason he has to stay there, he still understands that I just keep going. There is great beauty in the student who shows up at a university and is bombarded by all these different kinds of isms and ideologies and is just frustrated and he's confused, but he keeps going. There's great beauty in the church, in churches that are, I, I don't want to, I may offend you here. I don't know if I should say this or not. Okay. <clears throat> this is such a cool church. I was a pastor of Red Mountain Church in Birmingham, and we were so cool, it was unbelievable. We had the exposed brick thing going, you know what I mean? We had the weekly communion thing going. We had a thing on the back of the bowl, you know, we love the city, we love the poor, yeah, yeah, we do that, okay? We were just really, really cool. And I had to spend five years convincing them, no, you're not cool at all. You're not. You're a bunch of losers. You're not cool. The exposed brick, who cares? <laughs> and the stuff on the back of the bulletin, you know what? I'm pretty sure you're suburban people who live in the city. I'm pretty sure you're just like everyone that lives out in Hoover. I'm pretty sure that you're, that's the way you are. There are lovely people, don't get me wrong. You're not. In fact, you know, there are, there's great beauty in the churches that are just unbelievably not cool. Churches that just show up, and we attend one now, my wife and I. It's kind of an overreaction to cool. We go to a real schmo church now, all right? There's like 25 people, average age is 65 or 70. I hope they don't hear this. It's, they have the worst music in all of Christendom in this church, okay? I mean, it's just terrible. We're talking bringing in the sheaves on an out-of-tune piano. But it is just watching these people... Just keep going. Believe the gospel and encouraged by our presence. There is incredible beauty in that. So when the church and the city and the campus, the important thing is not that this is an elitist school or it's a cool city. Like Athens is really cool too. That's great. You shouldn't be embarrassed by that, but that doesn't make it valuable. It is the fact that, you know what? Christ died for the ungodly. We have great hope in that. And this resistance is producing a godly character to me based on my hope in Jesus. That the eye has not seen, nor the ear heard, nor entered to the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. And so, you know what, Redeemer? You guys are pretty cool, but you know, no one cares about that. What God cares about is your forward motion. The idea that you show up in faith. And for some of you, that's going to mean God's going to do maybe extraordinary things in the eyes of the world. And others, it's going to mean 10, 15 more years of changing diapers, of being stuck in a job you don't like, of having kids that at one point you can't stand these kids. All right? It's having a, it's having a relationship with your spouse where you want to sometimes, I, why did I marry this person? But we persevere and see the gospel make something extraordinarily beautiful out of something which in the eyes of the world is very, very plain. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for the gospel and pray that we would make it our ambition to be well-pleasing to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.